I want to thank Andy, even though he's not here, for the invitation to share with you today. And uh, my name is Matt Reynolds, and I know Andy and Sarah Elizabeth and uh, Carolyn, uh, although this is, I think, our first time maybe meeting in person, but uh, through, through my work with Refuge. And so I feel like I've known uh, Grace Fellowship for a while now, and I'm thankful for your giving to our organization to support ministry among refugees and, uh, and immigrants. So, uh, so thank you for that. Um, if you have your Bible, turn uh, in it to John 12. And uh, Andy told me that you all have been going through Isaiah these days. Is that, is that right, Isaiah? But he said, I didn't have to preach from Isaiah or about refuge, so I'll do neither. Uh, I'm going to preach from John. It does touch on missions and the nations, and I hope to, uh, to bring that out. But um, if you have, if you're a note taker, uh, the title that I gave Andy is uh, Works, I think, but I think there's another title that's better that I'll be working off of, and, and, and it is Mission Accomplished. So if you want to to make that little correction. This, this one works. I think it's, it's true. But uh, mission accomplished is, is what the outline uh, relates to. And I'm going to read from John 12. Uh, just before the divide in your chapter probably. Uh, probably divides it at verse 20. I'm going to get a little bit of the background in starting in verse 17. And read through uh, verse 36. So 17 through 36 of John 12. All right. And it reads, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him." Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, 
We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I just pray your blessing on it as I preach it now. I ask that you would give me strength uh, to preach it as it should be preached. Father, that the full force uh, of this passage may come upon us. And Father, I just pray that we would gain encouragement and hope um, that we would be challenged uh, by your word today. Uh, Father, that your mission and the necessity of the cross and the necessity of our dying with Christ for this mission to be accomplished might come across loud and clear. Uh, Holy Spirit, please move and have your way among us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Nowadays, it's very common for churches, uh, for businesses, for organizations to have mission statements. And uh, you have one too, I think. I looked on your website and I saw that Grace Fellowship Church exists so that for the glory of God and through the power of God, we might take the life-changing good news of Jesus to the whole world. So that's your, your mission statement. Um, at our church, Antioch, our mission statement is we pursue intentional gospel relationships to display Christ's glory among the nations. And uh, businesses have mission statements. So here's Amazon's. Uh, Amazon serves customers through online and physical stores and focus on selection, price, and convenience. That just doesn't uh, motivate me, but... But anyway, that's, that's theirs. Uh, the NFL, theirs is we unite people and inspire communities in the joy of the game by delivering the world's most exciting sports and entertainment experience. And, of course, I have to get in our uh, mission statement of refuge. So to glorify God by partnering with local churches to love refugees and immigrants. Uh, but a mission statement... A good mission statement tells what an organization is out to do or what a church hopes to do, uh, what it hopes to accomplish. It's slightly different from a vision statement, which really sets out who they hope to be. So a little, a little different. But if a church or a business or an organization is aligned with its mission statement, then everything it does has to pass the muster of that mission statement. If it agrees with the mission statement, you keep it and you do it. If it doesn't agree with the mission statement, then it may need to be changed or perhaps tossed altogether. Oh, what about the church? If I asked you what and you don't have to, to answer, I know entire books have been written about this, so uh, I'm just looking for a short answer. But in your mind, when you think of the church, uh, what is the church's mission? And I, I think it's reflected in, in your own mission statement. And Matthew 28, 18 through 20 comes to mind. Uh, Jesus' great commission, right, to, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And I'll, lo, I'll be with you till the end of the earth. 
It's, it's hard, to, especially with respect to the lost that have not heard the gospel, it's hard to argue against that, that that's our mission statement. And perhaps someone might say, well, with respect to the body, perhaps they might think of Ephesians 2, uh, where it talks about equipping the saints, gifts that God has given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Um, they might, that might come to mind. Uh, what about Jesus? Uh, did Jesus have a mission statement? And when I think about that, I think of these summary statements that Jesus made early and throughout his ministry. Statements like, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5, 32. Or, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. So Jesus himself saying, this is why I came. Or Paul, thinking back to Jesus' ministry, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So agreeing with Jesus' own statement about his his ministry, and his mission. And in terms of how Jesus went about this mission, initially, as you read the gospel accounts, you see that he went village to village in the synagogue, the hillside, preaching the good news of the kingdom. You see that kind of language a lot. Healing diseases, casting out demons. And with respect to the entire span of the gospel accounts, I think we could call this Jesus' initial strategy. For accomplishing his mission. That's not all he did, but initially that's what he did. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, but ultimately, and what's before us in this passage today is what I would argue is Jesus' ultimate strategy to save sinners, namely to die on a cross. And not only to save random sinners or just Jewish sinners, but to draw all people I think we could say all peoples in the context of this passage, all peoples to himself. That's Jesus' mission. And this passage tells us about that mission. As we keep reading, we see he did accomplish that mission, and hence the, the title, Mission Accomplished. And so there's a, a thesis statement. If you, if you want to write down a thesis statement, only through the cross... Did Jesus accomplish his mission, namely to save sinners from all peoples and bring glory to his Father? Only through the cross did Jesus accomplish his mission to save sinners from all peoples and bring glory to his Father. And I think I, I should have added to that, and only by being united with Christ in his death and resurrection will we accomplish the commission that he's given to us, both ways through the, through the cross. So I want to set the stage for this and just bring you in a little bit on the context of this passage. I started reading in verse 17, and if you back up to chapter 11, you see that a great miracle had just been done. Jesus had raised a man from the grave that had been dead four days, uh, Lazarus. 
He raised Lazarus from the dead. And in chapter 12, it opens, there's a meal in Mary and Martha's home. Or, Mar- or Martha served at least. I think another gospel account says it was Simon's home. But Lazarus was there. And everybody, as you can imagine, wanted to see Lazarus. And they wanted to see Jesus because this man had been dead. He was alive. And here's the man that did the miracle. And as a result of this, there was both growing popularity, as we see in the middle of chapter 12, the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in on a donkey, and all the crowd is worked up, and they're laying palm trees down and saying, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And there's this growing popularity. Everybody wants to see Jesus. But at the same time, there's growing opposition. And the Pharisees, in verse 53 of chapter 11, they're they're making plans. It says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So at the same time, growing popularity, growing opposition. And so much were they opposed to Jesus that they thought, humorously, I think, that they would put Lazarus to death, as if Jesus couldn't raise him again, right? Right? But that's what they say in in verse uh, 10 of chapter 12. So growing popularity, growing opposition, and in a statement of just sheer exasperation, in verse 19 of chapter 12, the Pharisees say, they look at one another, they say to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And I don't think that's coincidental that they said world. I don't think they meant literally all the world because all the world wasn't there. But I think what they meant was everybody. Everybody's going after Jesus. But I don't think it's coincidental because you have world in verse 19. And in verse 20, the world comes to Jesus. And it's a turning point in Jesus' ministry. In verse 20... We read, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So some Gentiles. And this acts like a trigger in Jesus' ministry. A turning point, if you will, toward the cross. And so in this passage today, I want to look at Jesus' mission. And I'll divide it into two parts and intersperse it with our mission. Okay, so the first part is... The immediate mission of Jesus, that's the first point. The second will be how it relates to our mission, then Jesus' ultimate mission, and then conclude. So Jesus' immediate mission, and, and, and through this I think you'll see, and, and this, was, this was the difficult part of preparing this message, there are three themes that just run through the course of this passage Death, glory, and missions. And they're almost inextricably bound up together, but they all run through. And I hope that we'll see that our mission as believers and from different nations, our mission is bound up with Jesus' mission. We can't accomplish our mission unless we are joined and we come to die with him as he accomplished his mission through the cross. So let's look first at the immediate mission 
um, verses 20 through 24 mostly, and verse 32 as well. So these Greeks, just a little word about these Greeks, and, and I um, got some help from a commentary on this. It's, it's, it's pretty obvious that these are not Jews. These are Gentiles. Uh, but there was a category of Gentile that would have been permitted to actually worship and to take part in the festivals, a proselyte. And they could do so because though they were not Jewish, they'd been circumcised. But it doesn't seem that that's the case with these. These would have just been maybe like the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, They'd heard of, of Yahweh and they came to worship, but they could only go so far in the worship. They were permitted only in the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further. And we might wonder why Greeks or Gentiles would be encouraged to think that they could come worship Jesus or, or come, come to the temple and participate in the festival at all? Or, or why, they, why would they would be encouraged to see Jesus? Excuse me. Um, because most of Jesus' ministry had been in Israel. Uh, Capernaum, Galilee, Judea. Uh, you do have a little bit in Samaria. I'll speak about that in a minute. But most, it was a Jewish-focused ministry. In fact, when Jesus sent out the 12 newly appointed disciples in Matthew 10... He told them specifically, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And you may remember another passage that's really tough to swallow, actually, in Matthew 15, when a woman comes to Jesus begging him to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And she One gospel account calls her Syrophoenician, another calls her Canaanite, but she's a Gentile. And Jesus' words to her just sting. He says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So had they heard of that, I don't know if they would have ever come to Jesus. But there were other events in Jesus' ministry that might have encouraged them to seek him. Uh, Jesus' two-day ministry in Samaria, earlier in this very gospel, where the Samaritan woman and Jesus called her on all her sin, and that she was living with a man that wasn't her husband, and when she realized who he was, that he was the Messiah, she went and told, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, and they invited him to stay two days, and he did. Stayed two days in Samaria. And many believed on him there, not just because of the woman's word, but because of Jesus' word. Or they might have heard about the Roman centurion, who were told loved the Jewish nation and built the synagogue for the Jews in Capernaum. And you remember, he, he, he didn't even have to have Jesus come to his home and possibly avoiding the tension, the awkward tension that would have been there for a Jew to come to a Gentile home. He said, just say the word. And my servant will be healed. And Jesus did, and the servant was healed. Maybe they'd heard about that. I don't know. Or maybe they'd heard when he taught that he was the good shepherd that would lay down his life for the sheep, and he hinted that he had other sheep that were not of this fold. And contrary to what the Latter-day Saints claim, I believe these are... Gentiles, other sheep, not of the Jewish fold. Um, 
Maybe he also had heard how that played out with the Canaanite woman that after Jesus said, it's not right to give the dogs uh, food from the, the, the table, and she said, but even the dogs eat crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus did heal her daughter. Maybe they'd heard that. Or maybe they'd heard even recently when Jesus ran the money changers out of the temple that he had said this would be a house of prayer for all nations. We really don't know. Uh, we're not sure, but immediately before, we, and the, the Pharisees and religious leaders seem to uh, unconsciously be prophesying a lot in this passage, but in the end of chapter 11, when they're concerned uh, at, at this growing popularity, and in verse 49, uh, or excuse me, 48, they say, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then we're told he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So there were, even though Jesus' ministry was primarily in Israel, uh, primarily focused on the Jewish people, all these hints that it had a bigger scope than just Israel. Perhaps these men had heard that. At any rate, they come. And the way they come is interesting because they approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee which was in the north and perhaps the place that was nearest to where they were from as, as Gentiles. Not sure, but it's, it's possible. It also seems like Philip was a little unsure, perhaps, as to whether he should actually take these Gentiles to Jesus. I mean, after all, everybody wanted to see Jesus, and they were Gentiles. But he, he goes and checks with Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus... In verse 22. And then the answer that Jesus gives in 23 is not exactly direct. He doesn't say, sure, bring them, bring them to me. He also doesn't say, no, I was only sent to the children of Israel. Instead, he answers, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As we read on, we see that the hour had come for Jesus to go to the cross. Interesting that this would be the trigger, if you will, uh, that, that the, the Gentiles coming wanting to see Jesus would be the trigger for Jesus to say, the hour has come. As, as if to say... I can only reach so many people through my earthly ministry of preaching and healing. But if I die, there will be a great harvest from all nations. And that's basically what verse 24 says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So... The Jews had the privilege of hearing Jesus preach and teach. My ancestors did not, unless some of you are Messianic 
Jews here today, your ancestors did not have that privilege. But because Jesus went on to the cross and that message has been proclaimed, then we also are in Christ today. Now, on the one hand, no Jew would be saved without the cross, right? The writer of Hebrews makes that very clear. Uh, The blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to save, not finally, not forever. So the Jews would not be saved without the cross. So it's not as though... Jesus is saying, oh, in order to save the Gentiles, the Gentiles need the cross, but the Jews don't need the cross. That's that's not what's in view here. But what is in view here is with respect to the cross is the creation of a new covenant community comprised of Jews and Gentiles. There's no way that these two peoples would ever come together in one body apart from the death of of God's Messiah. No way they'd be reconciled to God and certainly no way they'd be reconciled to each other. As I was studying, it said that there was actually an inscription around the Gentile court that said on pain of death were Gentiles permitted to enter. And they think that that was the dividing wall of hostility that Ephesians 2 speaks about. It was literally a wall, and Gentiles could not go in uh, without, uh, I I suppose they could if they were circumcised, but they could not, no matter how much they desired it. And Jesus, with his death, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. This would have been scandalous to the Israelites of Jesus' day, and I dare say it still would be. That God's Messiah would not be only for ethnic Israelites, but for all the peoples of the earth. And I think this is still scandalous today, and I'll try to show why by way of uh, uh, something I heard recently from a pastor. I was meeting with a pastor uh, to talk about refuge and, um, in southern Indiana, and they had had a number of Hispanics coming to their church, and even a Hispanic congregation beginning and, uh, the, and a pastor also that he was in touch with. But a lot of these uh, immigrant members were undocumented. And I think both just because of the changing demographic of the church and perhaps maybe some people being concerned about the undocumented nature, some of the members of the church left just because of these new members that were, were different, and perhaps because of conscience. Now, we can readily affirm, I think, when we think of the cross of Christ, there are many songs that talk about Jesus dying for me, how he died for me. And it is true. If we're, if we're in Christ, we've been saved. It is true. He did die for you and for me. But this passage reminds us that Jesus didn't just come for us. That would have been where the Jews were of that day. And it was the fact that Greeks came that Jesus said, Now the hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
He didn't just come for white people. He didn't just come for Americans. He came for Eastern peoples, tan people, brown people, black people, native citizens, immigrants, and illegal aliens, all people. Jesus came for all people. And let me skip down to verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the scope of Jesus' death. This is the scope of his mission, not merely to save sinners, but as we read on throughout the Bible and into Revelation, sinners from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And this reality has profound implications for our mission. So I want to shift gears from Jesus' immediate mission, okay, his immediate mission of the cross, of drawing all people to himself, that's the immediate mission, drawing all people to himself through the cross, to our mission, okay? Jesus also shifts gears, or transitions in verse 25, after talking about the grain of wheat that doesn't bear fruit unless it dies, he says, he goes from wheat to whoever and anyone. And this isn't coincidental. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In this passage and in the same in Mark's gospel account, Jesus had begun explicitly to talk to his disciples about the necessity of going to Jerusalem and to the cross. And we read there that Peter didn't like it. Peter rebuked him. But not only in that context did Jesus maintain that he had to go to the cross, but also that those that follow him also must bear the cross as well. So it's in the same context. He has to go to the cross. His believers have to go to the cross. He has to go to the cross to fulfill his mission to draw all people to himself. We have to Go to the cross. We have to die with Jesus if we would see all peoples come to Christ. Or as Paul puts it in the sixth chapter of Romans, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Or as he puts it in his letter to the church at Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In terms of doctrine, this is the doctrine of union with Christ. And growing up, I, I don't think I heard it mentioned so much, but it is this, that when we believe on Jesus, it's not merely that we're saved and forgiven of our sins, but by faith we are united with Christ, that his death becomes our death, and his life becomes our life. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. It's a new life now in the power of the Spirit, and upon his return, a new glorified, resurrected body that is fit for the new heaven and the new earth. And this is where we get the words from this song that I'm guessing you sing at this church probably, uh, Before the Throne of God Above. One of the verses, uh, 
drawing from Colossians 3, 3, says, One with himself. I cannot die. Why can't I die? Because I'm one with Jesus. That's why I can't die. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. That's why we have eternal security. Because Christ is eternally secure in the Father's hand. And we're united with Christ and we're eternally secure. That's why we have new life, because Jesus rose from the grave. And this is true not just in a cosmic sense or in an eternal sense, but every day that we live in all of the small ways, all the little forks in the road that we have in everyday life where we have a choice. As uh, author Paul Miller says in his book, J-Curve, we have a choice of whether we'll ascend the boasting ladder or whether we'll descend with Christ. Every day, there are opportunities to die with Christ. It's not just when someone holds a gun, if someone held a gun to our head and said, do you believe in Jesus? That's an ex extreme way. But every day, there are these opportunities to die with Christ. These verses remind us also that... Our message is never divorced from our lives. Our message is never divorced from our lives. I, think, I thank God for Louisville, Kentucky. And it is a rich place to live in terms of churches and educational opportunities. And I think that this church, like many others that I know, major on understanding the gospel and the Bible well and communicating the truths of the gospel accurately. And that is essential. And because of that, I think when missionaries go overseas, they, they, they put a lot of thought and time and energy into making plans of how they will communicate the gospel. Strategies as to reach a certain people. But these verses remind us that if Christ's death is not seen in our lives, we will either, our lives will either, that, that, that we will invalidate the message that we preach. In other words, we cannot preach the message of a dead, of a, a, a dead and risen Savior, a crucified and risen Savior, and be unwilling in our lives to die to our rights, our preferences, um, Dying to having the last word in a conversation. Um, dying to our boasts and, and, and so on and so forth. They both have to be there. Uh, we, we served overseas for many years. Uh, first with the IMB and then with Pioneers. And the IMB, it was pretty much an all-American field force. Uh, by virtue of the fact that the money that sent the missionaries came from churches here in America. So it just, that's just kind of the way it worked. But, but in Pioneers, you had teams that were comprised many times of people from nations of all around the world. And it was, really, it was a beautiful thing, and it was a challenging thing, as you can imagine. And, and I remember being in meetings, in leadership meetings, where the topic of discussion was how do we ensure unity and parity equality 
when one person comes from a country where they can hardly afford street food and someone else comes from a country where they can eat out at a nice restaurant every day in the local economy, how do these work together? And as different strategies and, and possibilities were thrown out as to how teams might be able to, to, to gain some sense of unity and equality, what came over me was just this kind of awful realization that there's no way unless we that are from more wealthy countries are willing to die, uh, maybe willing to eat out less for the sake of other team members, maybe willing to live in a residence that's maybe not as nice, or maybe we live in the same place because we feel our our children need it or whatever, but maybe I give more. Maybe it means I give more to support my brother or sister that's serving on the same team. What I'm getting at is that this, what Jesus is talking about, about whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me, he must follow me. Where did Jesus go? To the cross. Where I am there will my servant be also. Profound implications for the way we do ministry and the way we have church. But the promise there, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And it's very similar to the promise in Matthew that the Father sees in secret, and he who sees in secret will reward you, that Jesus promises to do that. I think this is especially true with respect to peoples who are different from us and even estranged from us. I think of the history between races in the United States and I think this has often been the failing point of many in the predominantly white church. We've said the right words but they haven't seen Christ's death in us. They haven't seen a willingness to die and lay down our rights or alter our buildings or our practices we've held on to them so tightly that they haven't perhaps seen the same dying Christ that we see in Scripture but and especially when there is a history of abuse or oppression or discrimination or ignoring or overlooking nothing short of our being united in our Savior's condescension Humility and death will do to bring them to saving faith in Christ. Nothing else will do. And if we don't do that, even what we say will be invalidated by our lives. So Jesus' immediate mission, to draw men to himself. And it affects our mission. It affects the way we go about our mission. But thirdly, Jesus' ultimate mission. Jesus' ultimate mission. And I didn't realize this growing up, but there's something even greater than saving sinners, than drawing all men to himself. And we see this first in verse uh, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in verse 27 and following. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so the ultimate reason is the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. And certainly drawing 
sinners from all peoples and tribes glorifies the Father and the Son as well. Glory. Um, when I think of glory, and if you were to try to define glory, uh, words like uh, resplendence or splendor or shining uh, come, come to my mind in terms of glory. It's might, it's, it's power uh, that's, that's undeniable, that's easily, that's easily seen. And when we see such glory, uh, the only appropriate response is to fall down and, and worship. And that's ultimately what we see at the end of this passage when they say, well, we heard that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. So when we see this glory in the cross, uh, the only proper response is to, to bow down. Um, how do we see glory in the cross? It, it does sound odd to, uh, to speak of the cross in that way. It was, after all, an instrument of torture. How could it be glorious for us as Christians? And I think it's because of what we see in the cross. In the cross, we see Jesus obeying the Father perfectly, totally submitting to his Father. That's one reason it's glorious. Also, we see Jesus glorified the Father in the redemption of sinners. That took place at the cross. He purchased a people for God's glory there. We also see Jesus at his most human moment on the cross. Uh, we know he was born as a baby in a manger, but it was on the cross that he experienced what all of us that are here today will one day experience, which is death. And Jesus humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. And on the cross, we also see the Father at his most loving. All through Scripture, we see the, the Bible talk about God's steadfast love. But on the cross, we see the full extent of it. Uh, nowhere do we see love of the Father like this when Jesus died on the cross. And after he talks about glory, related to this glory, three ways that he would be glorified, he, he makes three statements of what's about to take place. The first one in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. And earlier in John, you may remember after the for God so loved the world passage, it says all who believe in him will be saved, but those who do not believe will not be saved, that they're condemned already. Uh, you see the same thing in, in, uh, toward the end of chapter 12 when he says in verse 47, I, do not, excuse me, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And I've heard it described that the cross and Jesus' ministry was like a two-edged sword. It, it healed those that believed, and it cut those that didn't. So he didn't come to judge the world, but the cross sealed the judgment of the world. And the second one there, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This was the death knell 
to Satan's captivity of his prisoners. Uh, the Bible teaches that in, in our sin, we're all slaves of a different master. We're slaves of Satan. But at the cross, Satan's slaves were, were freed and then realized upon hearing the gospel and believing. And then, as we've already seen, when he's lifted up, he draws all men to himself. So three ways uh, glory there. I just want to press home again, and I don't think I'm making too much of this. Uh, one way that you, we were taught in seminary, and you've probably heard this from Andy, one way that you know the main thrust of a passage oftentimes is in the bookends. What's said at the beginning, what's said at the end. And I just want to point this out again. In the beginning, verse 20, the beginning of this episode, we see Greeks. And at the end of this episode, in verse uh, 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This really was a pivotal point in, in history. And when you take this together with other passages like John 17, where Jesus prayed for those that would believe, and he prayed that we would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may also, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. In our oneness, as the world looks and sees Christ's death, our rights, our preferences subjected for the sake of being united with our brothers and sisters who are different from us, it's a special witness to the world that testifies that God really has sent us. Similarly, Paul writes in Ephesians about the mystery revealed in the Gentiles. And he says that he proclaims this mystery among the Gentiles and that by bringing it to light, the wisdom of God is made manifest through the church. So through the church, the church should be and I think just looking around, this, it's a beautiful picture here. The church should be a display of God's grace in drawing all men to his son through his death on the cross. We should be. I think that's what Paul's getting at. That was the mystery. How are Jew and Gentile going to be united? And it's in the cross. And it's spoken in word form. It's seen in our lives and it's seen in the church. And I would argue that the more... Uh, Ethnically diverse a church is, the more that's on display. So whether violence between gangs from different neighborhoods in Louisville or brutal warfare between ethnic groups in the Tigray region of Ethiopia or between Hutus and Tutsis in the Congo DRC or Rohingya and Burmese or Kurds and Turks or high caste and low caste in India or black and white Americans, the cross of Christ alone can break down the dividing wall and effectively deal with the sin that separates us from God and with each other. The passage ends really with an invitation, and I'll leave you with this invitation as well. And I would summarize it with these five words. Believe while you still can. 
Believe while you still can. Uh, the people here in Jesus' day would not see Jesus physically after he went to the cross. They had a unique opportunity while he was still with them. Uh, the same could be said of us living on this side of the cross. We are privy to the full gospel message. But none of us here knows if we'll hear it another time, if we'll have another opportunity to believe. So believe while you still can. Believe while you have the light that you may become sons of light. So on the cross, Jesus accomplished his mission by being lifted up. He's drawn all people and is drawing all people to himself. Uh, by shedding his blood, he wrested sinners from the clutches of the devil and ransomed a new covenant people comprised of all tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. And because he purchased them, they will surely come as we who know him proclaim the good news to the lost. So I just want to leave you with, again, a reminder that this was Jesus' mission. Um, to draw all men to himself, to give God glory. How did he accomplish it? Through the cross. How will we accomplish the mission he's given us? Yes, through proclaiming. Uh, yes, through going. But also through dying. Uh, it will not be apart from being joined with our Savior in his death. But every time we undergo a death for our Lord, because we're united with Christ, there will most certainly be a resurrection. Uh, almost always in this life, in small ways, but certainly in the age to come. Let me pray for us. Father, um, this passage is uh, encouraging, but it's also tough. And Father, we just thank you that being united with you um, also means that we have your spirit within us. And Father, I just confess how we need your spirit and the boldness of your spirit, the power of your spirit, if we are to say no to the incessant urges that we have to boast, uh, to remind people of our titles and our positions and uh, where we come from and our education and our class and so on and so forth, only by your spirit can we settle for less than what we think we deserve. But Father, grant us your spirit, the spirit of your dying son, that we may die with him, that the world may see that you have sent us and sent him, uh, that all peoples may be drawn to him through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.